The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing and turn your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 5. Our text this evening is James chapter 5 and verses 19 through 20. So let us give the Lord our attention and worship him by receiving his word. James chapter 5 and verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, how again we thank you this evening for your word. We pray that you would come to us and bless bless us as we receive that word, Lord God. We pray that it would be again for us this evening a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our paths, that by your spirit you would enlighten our minds to understand and our hearts to receive it. Oh, Lord, that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free to live as faithful servants of him who is the way and the truth and the life even Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please please be seated. When my family first completed or had completed our missionary service in Africa and we were back and actually living in the States and people would ask us uh, what it was like, how life in the States was different for us than life in Africa, one of the answers I gave that maybe was surprising or seemed a little bit strange is I said, it feels so strange to be in a supermarket and be shopping only for myself and, or only for myself and my own family. You see, in Africa, where we lived in, in rural Karamoja, uh, it was very limited, the, the amount of groceries that we were able to get. And so whenever we would, to, would take that two-hour-plus drive down to the big town of Mbali, it always involved shopping, and it was never one-stop shopping. You were always kind of running all over the place because it was difficult to find what you were looking for. It was a lot of work, but it was never, ever just for my own family. My teammates would give me shopping lists between the different families and single missionaries. Sometimes I'd be juggling seven different lists. And so to be back here in the States going into a super, Walmart Supercenter, for example, to see all these things, I couldn't help but feeling a bit selfish, self-serving, thinking, shouldn't I be calling up teammates and go, you wouldn't believe all the stuff they have here. What can I bring you? Shopping in Africa was a lot of work, but it was always an opportunity to, to serve, to encourage, to bless my teammates. They would do the same for our family. And the point here is that it was always a good reminder that, that life is not about serving yourself. And so it is with godliness. Our focus on this last sermon on godliness is a reminder that godliness, the pursuit of godliness is not only for our own sake. It's not about shopping for yourself, as it were. Ultimately, of course, it's for the Lord. But as we strive unto that ultimate that ultimate end of glorifying our God, he calls us to pursue godliness not only for the sake of our own personal relationship 
with him. It's for the sake of others. And so what, what is Thomas Watson's last section on his 24 characteristics of the godly man? It's this. A godly man strives to be an instrument for making others godly. Now, I believe that that comes out very powerfully in the command with which James concludes his epistle as we see it before us this evening. We see the command about bringing back the wandering sinners. We have, I believe, kind of a specific application of that general biblical principle that Watson gives us. This evening we'll look at at the command of James, but consider also that broader application. Our message this evening is that the godly seek to bring back wandering sinners. And I have three points for us this evening, three points which come from our text and these are things I think that we can say about that work of, of bringing back a wandering sinner, but about more, more generally about that characteristic of godliness, that of being concerned about the souls of others. Our, th- our three points are these. First, that it, it's an important purpose of being godly. Secondly, that it reflects the compassion of Jesus. And then lastly, that it is a participation in the work of him, the sin-atoning Savior. So consider that first point then, that it's an important purpose of being godly. James concludes his epistle in kind of an interesting way, doesn't he? It's somewhat abrupt. That's James's style. There's nothing in terms of any concluding personal greetings like we find in other New Testament letters. Instead, what do we find? Well, one writer, Grant Osborne, describes it this way. He writes, James calls the community to action in helping those who have fallen into the ethical sins dealt with in the book. Therefore, this closing section acts as a summary of various sins and their solutions. So if that's a correct way to view the ending of the epistle here, and I think that is a helpful, uh, helpful word there, note this well then. This is, this is kind of an important application of all that James has written about godliness and sort of an important concluding word about uh, of all that we've learned about godliness in this sermon series. This highlights just how important a component of true godliness is that of being concerned about the godliness of others. Everything James writes builds up to this kind of culminating word, this call to action. He says, go, go to that one who has wandered from the truth. Bring that person back. I think James probably has in mind one who has been a professing believer, a member of the visible church, though some interpret this or certainly see the application as more broadly, and it's appropriate that we'll do that. We'll see this evening. But one who was a, a believer, a member of the church who has in one way or another, to one degree or another, walked down that path of walking away from the Lord, wandered from God's truth, maybe wandering God's truth about persevering in the faith. James spoke to that just earlier in the chapter. He gave words about remaining steadfast, even under trial, even amidst suffering, James 5, verses 7 through 12. Maybe this is one who is, has been neglecting the assembly. We think of the Hebrews 1025 warning about not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Or maybe they've begun to walk in some other sin. It could be any of the sins which James mentions 
in this letter. Any sin to which we give ourselves has that, that potential for ensnaring us and leading us down that dangerous path away from Christ. So this is a call for the believers then to be vigilant and helping one another whenever that happens. We are to identify, identify those ones in that category and we are to go to them. We are to reclaim them. We are to be more than just, just distantly and passively concerned about the godliness of others. And I don't think that James means even just being prayerfully concerned, although I will say that, that in this context we see that prayer is something of, of vital importance. Just a few verses before our text, the end of verse 16, James says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And he illustrates that by the prayer of Elijah. So surely this is, part of this is a call into vigilant prayer. And that, that, that should include certainly prayer for those who are struggling. Prayer for those who may be struggling with particular sins. Prayer for those who might be struggling amidst their trials if, if, if our brothers and sisters in their struggles, struggles with sin, if they're on our hearts, then they will be often in our prayers, prayers that God would be working to preserve them in Christ and return them if any of them have wandered from the truth. Surely we should expect that that, that great work of, of bringing, the work of the Lord of bringing back those wandering sinners is something that God will do through us in response to our prayers the prayers of his people. We could have done a whole separate sermon on praying. Watson reminds us that the godly man is a praying man. But this text also reminds us that the Christian obedience is not about only praying. We don't sit back and and pray and then do nothing but just wait for God to do the rest. Just just leave to God the work of bringing back the wandering sinner, right? No, that's not the idea. Nor, I'll mention, nor should we see that as a work that is reserved only for the elders of the church. I suppose, given the context here, James, one could argue that James is really addressing particularly the elders. In verses 14 through 16, we do read about a particular work of the elders, that of anointing with oil and praying over that one who is sick. And in that context, the elders are are surely called to be giving, giving spiritual counsel about any sin which may be involved. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes sickness is chastening for sin. And in giving spiritual counsel, the elders might very well discern that to be the case. And so in that, that, that context then of praying for the sick, confession of sin may be called for. James makes that, that very clear. So it is true, it is true that, that pastors and elders are indeed called unto that work of, of bringing back those wandering sinners by virtue of the office we hold. As pastors and elders, we have a particular duty in this regard. But I believe that James is here, here is really addressing all Christians, the godly man, every godly man or woman strives to be an instrument in making others Godly, not just the elders, but all Christians are called to be godly. All Christians are called to this important work, from the oldest and most mature to even the youngest. As Watson describes this, he mentions bees and spiders. Let me ask a question to the children this morning. Do you think as Christians God calls us to be more like 
Like bees or like spiders? Which do you think? Watson answers, bees. Now, why do you think that is? Well, it's not that we're to go around stinging people. But Watson writes this, spiders work only for themselves, but bees work for others. I guess it is kind of a somewhat, at least by our opinion, selfish life, the life of a spider, right? Spends all this time building this big, beautiful web, only to camp out all alone and and never have any interaction with any other living creature except when they come along and get caught in the net and then they simply devour the let creature. Obviously, spiders do connect with other spiders to make spider babies and procreate, propagate the species. Uh, Some widow spiders are known where the females actually eat the males, and so obviously these are not examples for our godliness. But bees, bees by contrast, amazing in the way that they, they serve one another. They, they, they keep each other warm when it's cold and cold when it's too hot. They even share information about where the food is. Bees even bathe each other. Perhaps you knew all that. But did you know this? That bees even care for the sick among them. Wow, if that's, if that's true, what a contrast between spiders and bees, Watson's point is well taken. We are, we are called to be busy as bees as we strive unto godliness, but not for the purpose of serving our own interests, but for serving the interests of others as we serve the Lord. And that's certainly true then with regards to that, that call upon us, to, that call to be those who reclaim wandering sinners. I want to build on that first point as we move to our second point about being godly in this way, which is that doing so reflects the compassion of Jesus. And by the way, the compassion of Jesus, which we should have in mind this evening, is a compassion which, which, which speaks to his heart, not only towards those believers who have wandered away, but in, more generally, uh, all unbelievers. One, one commentator, Doriani, uh, as I mentioned earlier, writes that the, the anyone who James has in mind here, anyone who wanders, may or may not be, he writes, a member of the visible Christian community. He writes that James also had unbelievers in sight. Now, of course, as he points out here, we know that sometimes there are unbelievers present in the church. Think of James chapter 2. There are those with a faith that's not true faith. Faith without works is dead. Or even the beginning of chapter 5, where he, he seems to be preaching to, seems to be particularly addressing those who may not be believers at all. At any rate, an important part of, of uh, godliness is being concerned about the lost, both inside and outside the church. As Watson writes about how a godly man strives to be an instrument for making others godly, principally what he addresses is our efforts to bring unbelievers to Christ. And so that's why you see sort of a a missions emphasis uh, this evening as well. Our closing hymn is going to be a missions hymn. We we talked about that missionary work of the church and in our affirmation of faith this evening, the second petition. Watson writes, though God is the fountain of grace, yet the saints are pipes to transmit living streams to others. And Watson identifies three, three, three things from which this great effort for the conversion of souls proceeds. 
He writes, they proceed from the nature of godliness, and they proceed from a spirit of compassion. We're going to focus on that second one. He, he writes that, that it proceeds from a, they proceed from a holy zeal for the glory of Christ. And if we have a holy zeal for the glory of Christ, then we will glory in that very important attribute of Christ. We'll glory in the compassion of Christ. Let's think about that this evening. The compassion of Jesus. Watson writes, grace makes the heart tender. A godly man cannot choose but pity those who are in the gall of bitterness. He sees what a deadly cup is brewing for the wicked. He writes, now when a godly man sees captive sinners ready to be damned, he strives to, con- to convert them. He cites 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. It's a good question for us all this evening is to consider. How is your heart towards those who are lost? Do you feel compassion for those who are dying in their sins? Compassion for sinners who are lost without Christ. That's the heart of Christ. One of my favorite passages in the Bible in general, but specifically in the way it speaks or or illustrates the the compassion of Christ, is found in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, I invite you to turn there if you'd like to see it yourself this evening. Matthew chapter 14. I don't know whether in in God's providence when we reach that that, uh, chapter in our morning sermon series, whether it will fall to me to preach this, but I'll grab the opportunity to say a few things about this this evening. Matthew 14 and verse 13 in, Matthew's, uh, in Matthew 14, we read about the death of John the Baptist. We remember how, how Herod ordered his head to be taken off because of the, the, the promise that he made to the daughter of Herodias, his wicked wife. But how painful it must have been for our Lord to hear about the death, this terrible, tragic ending to the life of John the Baptist. So Matthew chapter 14, verse 13 says this, Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. No doubt part of this purpose of withdrawing and being alone was to have some time to mourn the death of John the Baptist. How sad to think that this was was the last of the old covenant prophets. This was that one whom God had raised up to, to prepare the way for the Christ. What a tragic end of his life. And of course, we know this would have affected Jesus in a very personal way and that John was his, at least his second or third cousin. This was painful. And I don't know about you, but when I read what it says in verse 13, how it continues, you note, and it tells tells us that the, the crowds heard it and how they followed him on foot from the towns, I have to think that if that had been me, I would have been at a point where I'd been saying, can't you just give me some space, leave me alone, give me some time to mourn. And it shows me how different Christ is than I am. What did our Lord do? Verse 14 tells us that it says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and listen to this, he had compassion. He had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Compassion is a part of, of godliness, and Jesus was the supremely godly one. Of course, Jesus himself was God, and as true God, he was the one full of infinite love, full of compassion. But he was also true man, and wonderfully, albeit mysteriously, 
as true man, our Lord learned godliness, didn't he? How did he do that? Well, he lived in communion with his God. He did what we saw last time. He walked with God as the godly man does. Jesus did not go off to grieve all alone. He went to be alone with his God. No doubt, I imagine, pouring out his heart, pouring out his tears unto the Father. We might, might say that Jesus processed his grief with perfect godliness, and in doing so, he, he, it only made him even more godly. You can only speculate a little bit about what all went on there, but I, I just think maybe as Jesus was there mourning, mourning the death of John, he thought about the, the, the terrible, the awfulness of sin and all of its terrible consequences in the world. But it did not drive him to bitterness or hopeless despair. It drove him to God. It drove him to the one who is the father of mercies, and he only grew in his godliness. He only grew even in his compassion. It drove him unto greater resolve to finish that work given to him by the father. To finish that work. To finish that work for us. That's the heart of Jesus towards sinners, full of compassion. We see it earlier in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Brothers and sisters, that's the heart of Christ. That's the compassion of Christ. That's what moved him to come and to seek and to save us. 1 Peter 2, verse 25 says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We praise God for that. But note well how our, our text this evening reminds us that, of that important way in which he shows forth his great compassion. He does so through us and through our efforts. And so why is it so important then for us to be striving unto godliness? Why is it so important for us to be living in the presence of Christ and learning, from, learning what he is like, learning to be more like him, cultivating Christ-likeness in our own lives? Here's why. It's to the end that we might become as Christ, instruments of Christ, his mercy, his compassion, his saving grace to others. That we should be so is such an astounding thought, but our text reminds us that it is so. And I want us to see that as we move to our last point about being godly in this way, which is this, that it is a participation in the work of him, our sin-atoning Savior. A participation in his work, as I was thinking about how to state this last point, I was wanting to be very careful, wanting to be very careful not to use any language that would any way give the impression that, that we are the ones who save or that we are able to, to cover over sins. But as you look at our text this evening, you might be struck with a sense that the James himself was not very careful about giving that wrong impression. I mean, how could he say this? Just listen again to those words of verse 20 and and to think that these were the very last words of his letter. James did not want the church to miss this. Just let him know. Let him know. If anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let that person know, verse 20. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
You know, if this is shocking language here, well, it's intended, I think, to, to shock us with a, the, the, the sense of the great, amazing work which God purposes to do through his godly ones, the saints. Of course, this is, this is no way to, in no way, of course, intended to deny the truth that, that Jesus alone saves. Jesus alone is the one who can cover over our sins. Not at all. That the reason that this language is perhaps shocking to the true believer is precisely because we understand the uniqueness of Christ in his saving work. We should marvel at these words of James by first rightly marveling at the work of Christ as uh, as we remember that he has done that work which you and I could never have done. Jesus did not simply fulfill the law in the way that you and I were called to fulfill the law, but failed. No, Christ, he received that special commandment from the Father, that commandment to lay down his life, to take upon himself the sins of all who would ever believe in him. That unique, that unique and uniquely glorious obedience, that is that, that righteousness which is imputed to us. No mere human, let alone any fallen sinner, could ever have produced that righteousness. Only he, only he who is the God-man, the alone sinless Savior, only he, only Christ could do that. And that's why Paul writes that in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. We praise God for that righteousness. We praise God that that, that Romans 5, 18, one act of righteousness, by that one act of righteousness, our sins are, are covered and washed away and that, 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 that very righteousness is imputed to us and received by faith alone. What could wash away my sins? Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. By his blood, he, Christ, alone saves, and he saves to the uttermost all who come to him by faith. Friend, if you've never done that, if you're here listening this evening and you've never come to him truly, I invite you to come. Don't wait. Come to him now. Come this evening. Do you not see the great love of Christ? Do you not see the great compassion of Christ, his willingness to bleed and die for a sinner just like you? Will you not come? Will you not trust him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And by his grace, he will do that work of transforming you by the work of his Holy Spirit. And to what end will he do that work? Not so that you'll become godly, only for your own selfish benefit. Do you see the danger of of living your life in selfishness away from Christ. God can save you and make you this instrument of of his grace for others. Not for your own benefit are we to pursue godliness. Not for your own personal relationship with the Lord. Of course not. In becoming godly, we become like, like Christ. We can't imagine thinking of Jesus being godly, pursuing godliness only for his own benefit, only for his own personal relationship with the Father. No, it was for others. It was for us. It was for our salvation. It was to that end that we, too, would become godly. And so it is with our godliness. We come, become godly to the end that we might become instruments of making others godly. Yes, bringing lost sinners to Christ 
and being used of the Lord to preserve them in Christ, reclaiming them when they wandered away from Christ, spurring them on unto greater godliness, all by the power of the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit makes us spiritual so that in Christ-like manner, we can then go and we can, yes, we can restore those who fall into sin. We see this other places in the Bible, not only in our text this evening. Think about what Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6. It says in verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, listen to this, you who are spiritual should restore him. You see that? Be spiritual by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be spiritual so that you are able then to restore the offender. But how should you do it? In a spirit of gentleness, deal with that offender in the way in which Christ has dealt with you, in a way that that shows how compassionate Christ is toward you. Gently, gently, Paul writes. He writes, and in humility. In fact, Paul writes, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Never think that so highly of yourself that but for the grace of God you might walk down the very same sin which your brother or sister has, has fallen into. Remember your own sinfulness. And so in humility then, in humility go and show the grace of Christ to your struggling brother or sister. Paul writes in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Wow. Did you hear that? Is it really possible? Can we fulfill the law? Of course, that does not mean that we will ever do so perfectly, not this side of glory, but surely it does mean that we will, by the grace of Christ, walk in true obedience to his commandments by the power of the Spirit. In fact, in that Galatians 6 context, Paul focuses much on the work of the Spirit. And by the way, don't miss the the one another language there, and I think one important application of this, this bringing wandering sinners, bringing back wandering sinners principle, one important application both in the book of James as well as Galatians, not to mention the rest of the Bible, we think particularly of the book of, of Proverbs, is that we should be all, always open to hearing that perhaps we are the one who has wandered from the truth and is needing to be brought back. Be ready yourself to receive a word of correction when you are the one who has wandered away, in any way, wandered away from the truth of Christ, even when you are very mature in the faith, no matter how old you are. And certainly when you are young, right? Children, do not despise the discipline, the instruction. Do not despise the instruction of your parents, God has called your parents to be in your lives, those ones who preserve you and guide you on the path of truth and who correct you whenever you wander from the truth. For those who are parents, let this encourage us to be faithful, faithful in Christian parenting. This reminds us of an important reason for striving unto godliness. We need to strive unto unto godliness for the sake of others. Yes, for the sake of our children. Not only parents, but all of us, all of us who are called to model 
godliness. We need to be godly because they, the children and others and the struggling sinners, not to mention the lost world, they need us to be godly. I mentioned Christian parenting because in in that very section about striving to make others godly, Watson, Watson writes much about the importance of endeavoring to bring up our children in the fear of the Lord. He writes, If it is the sign of a godly man to promote grace in others, then much more ought he to promote it in his near relations. A godly man will be careful that his children should know God. And we do not hold the view that if we are faithful in this, it sort of guarantees that our children will also be faithful. And let me, let me encourage parents, parents with children, covenant children, who are those who have wandered, who have wandered from the truth. Perhaps you live with guilt, assuming it must be your fault. Perhaps you live with great guilt about the mistakes that you've made. You know, there's no benefit in living that way. No point in in beating yourselves up wherever you have made mistakes. Hey, confess it to the Lord. Receive his forgiveness. Uh, Strive, yes, to be more faithful. But press on, not in guilt, and not in hopeless despair. God is a God, he reminds us this evening. God is a God who brings back wandering sinners. Let that encourage us. Let that remind us never to lose hope. I do think that that the James uh, text this evening probably envisions that particular circumstance where there's a need for immediate intervention, right? Discerning this timely intervention is called for here. Go immediately to that one. Reclaim that brother or sister who is wandering. Other, Other times, we have gone. We've gone again and again, and it seems that brother or sister has not been responsive to our efforts. Okay, well, what do you do? You keep praying. Keep praying for a softening such that we might try again in the future, right? Pray for a timely word. Pray, pray for wisdom to discern what to say and when to say and when to go again, whatever the case. You, we, we don't lose heart. We press on. We press on in hope. This is God's work, and he will work where and how and when he is pleased to work. Let us trust him to do so. And let us, in trusting him, strive unto that godliness to which he calls us. Godliness not only for ourselves, but also for others. Godliness to the end that we might live as instruments of making others godliness and godliness in every way in which the Lord calls us to be godly, as we've learned in this sermon series. Let us do so. Let us press on in being godly by the grace of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, and for the great glory of our God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.